Uh, this is the Big Dumb Ride, a podcast dedicated to the joys, miseries, and lessons left unlearned from your big dumb bike rides. This guest, uh, Ken Ray, uh, I think probably does win the award for biggest dumbest ride so far. Oh, definitely the biggest. Definitely biggest. For Although sure. he, he seems to have had a, a pretty good handle on it, so maybe maybe not the yeah. dumbest. Maybe not the dumbest, but definitely the biggest. Oh man, Ken Ken is a beast. Ken is really interesting. He he primarily rides inside um, on Swift in his basement. Um, when he's not in Swifting, uh, he is doing these incredible endurance rides, and he's the kind of guy who can just crank out 300 miles in a day and, you know, seems to be completely fine. So he did the Transamerica race some years ago. And for those of us who knew Ken, we were following him on this ride. You get these little GPS updates about where you, he you is. were a dot, you were a dot watcher. Yeah. I was a dot watcher. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of wild just, you know, over the course of however many weeks it took him that, you know, you'd be going about your business and knowing that somewhere out there, Ken was just turning the wheels and yeah. it is unbelievable. Like, you know, you, you got across the Rockies, you got across Kansas. <laughs> um, but you know, it also, it's, it's a chance to kind of see America and experience America from the bike, which can be both, I think, incredible and terrifying. <laughs> Getting to that, you know, age of like, I need to get some refreshment, need some fluids pretty quick. No cars in the gas station parking lot, pull up to the gas station, see the sign on the, on the door that says, uh, store closed, rattlesnake. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Welcome to the Big Dumb Ride, Ken. I've done several, so. (laughs) (laughs) Describe the ride you're going to talk about tonight. It's, you know, distance, location, elevation, any other features you want us to know about. Paint the picture for us of this ride that you're you're going to talk about. So the main ride we're going to talk about, I guess, would be the the Trans Am. Uh, It was back in 2017. So the Trans Am, Trans America race is a yearly race done from Astoria, Oregon to the coast of Virginia, 4,300 miles free for all. So everyone starts in Astoria together the same day. They say go, and then it's however you want to race it. Some people take a long, long time. Um, I wanted to get it done as fast as possible because it really, really hurts and you want to get it over with. Um, Plus it's just a, you know, it's fun to race it and, you know, it's just a different mindset. So I ended up doing it in 19 days. Um, so that was good enough for fifth that year. And of course, every year is different because you have different weather conditions. You know, you go across, you know, the, the Rockies, go across Kansas, you know, across really the middle of the country. And it's a set route. Uh, so everybody's doing the same route and um, you're just on your own. So you can't get any support. Um, it's completely unsupported. Um, so you're getting all your provisions at gas stations, McDonald's, whatever you can find, you know, you can stay in hotels if you want, um, which I did, but some people camp the whole time. Some people just sleep in post offices. I mean, it's a, it's a wild adventure that people, you know, they play around with it and and take it as they will. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, each day was a different adventure almost and prep for this is you know, you can plan and plan and plan. And then all it takes is one little thing 
and you know, can really throw you off or you just get unlucky. Like the year I did it, when I crossed Yellowstone, um, if I had been a day slower or a half a day slower, a blizzard would have hit because it snowed in people and they were stuck for like a day or so. And so I got to keep going. And so you get these gaps because of that. Like the year after I did it, there was major flooding in a couple of spots and people had to wait for rivers to subside. But some of the people in the front made the breakthrough and they were done, you know? And so there's weird things like that that happen that, you know, yeah. you just you can prepare such a good break. How long yeah. did you prepare for? Yeah, it was about a six month prep. It was in June. So I started prepping in the winter before that. Um, and the whole reason I even decided to, to, to do it was, um, so I did Garrett County Grand Fondo <laughs> the summer before and I got lost. <laughs> and so I did like an extra, what part did you get lost on? It was early. <laughs> so it tacked on an extra like 40 miles or something and a lot more elevation. And I still finished, you know, pretty high up. And the guys, when I finished were like, oh, you should do endurance riding. I was like, how do you know what this is? And so he said, he said, watch the movie Inspired a Ride. And so I looked it up and that's a documentary about the Trans Am. And I watched it and it inspired me and I wrote it. So uh, I guess that worked. But like I said, I went in Google Earth and just marked out every gas station, every restaurant, every town, the mileage. So I had a spreadsheet with every mile marker that had a something because you had long stretches where you just didn't have any services. And you could prepare your day. I mean, I almost had, I knew, I, like, my goal was to do it within 20 days. Like I had it kind of logged that precisely. And then any time I could make up was just quicker getting it done. And so um, kind of just had a goal in mind of like, all right, I want to be done day X and um, go for it. And like I said, the only thing that you really couldn't uh, necessarily train or prepare for is just that many days in the saddle in a row. I was riding. 200 mile training days and stuff here locally just to prepare myself physically and to test all the gear so that was the thing you know you buy a bunch of gear because you look at it in a magazine or you read articles and you're like all right yeah how do i use it number one and then two how does it work i did use uh district cycle works matt moore and the guys down there to get my bike ready and to help me like for i'm somewhat mechanically inclined but i'm not the best bike mechanic i mean I can do a lot of simple stuff, but you know, I wanted to make sure, hey, you know, if I break a spoke mm -hmm. on, in the dark with a headlamp, you know, how do I do this? Reminding myself, oh yeah, that's how you do it. That's what this tool's for. Um, just to try to be ready and think that this is one of those crazy things. You prep and you prep and you prep. And I rode that whole thing, didn't have a single flat tire. What? And the only mechanical I had was the very first night. Like I went through a night and was riding uh, it's in Oregon, I was going down this hill and the top of Mount Mitchell, which is a old extinct volcano, there's all this lava rock and stuff. And I set my bike up to take a picture because it was like very scenic with the sun coming up. <laughs> and the lava rock scored one of my carbon spokes. And so I started bombing down this volcano descent. And I hear this ding, 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 ding. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like reminding myself, all right, how do I do this? How do I do this? And I'm like, I was too frantic almost. And you know, you got bags. And I'm like, all right, the tool I need is like very deep. I'm just going to get it. I can get down this hill. There's a town and there was a bike shop. Like I had cell service. So I was like, all right, there's a bike shop, but it's Sunday. 
and I zoomed down there and there was an old guy that was like just setting up some bikes in the back. And he was like, oh, I can fix that. No problem. Because I had the spokes with me. I had everything I needed. Yeah. And five minutes done. He fixed it. I didn't have to worry about it. I could actually like relax and like know it was done right. You know, it was like, the whole all right. The rest of like the 19 days across the country, you didn't have a single thing. I didn't have anything else. Nothing else. <laughs> wow. With the bike. Yeah. Oh, Physically, well. it's a daily challenge. You know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, I back up for a second because I remember... Sure. I have this, I have this memory of you training for this ride and, and it was after work, right before you were leaving for this trip and yeah. you're going to be camping and you're like, I'm going to bike 200 miles after work, lay down on the ground for the night and then come back to DC. Yeah. I just, I'm not a camper. I mean, I've just never camped much ever. Um, like as a kid, maybe a couple of times for fun, but I just, as an adult, haven't camped. Um, and so it was one of those things like, I need to know how to do this. And I had like baby sack and all this gear. Cause that's what you read. Like, again, um, you read things and you see blogs and you hear people's stories of how they did the Trans Am and, you know, people are sleeping in road ditches or, you know, a storm blows at me like, all right, I want to have the ability to do this. So like, I got to test this thing out. So I had, I had camped like in my living room a couple of times to test in the dark setting up a bivy and you know all that kind of stuff and sleeping in it it's like okay it's not too bad so then yeah i did leave after work went out the wnod went up you know to um to i guess well i guess it was up to like tour front royal and camp there at um i don't know what the name of it there's like a park out there anyway um and the funniest thing was you know it's pitch black midnight when i'm setting up my gear and stuff and i fell asleep and then all I hear is like honking like this uh, from uh, geese all night long. And I'm like, what in the world? Of course, it was dark. I didn't know where I was even at. I thought I was just in a field <laughs> off the side of the road. So I wake up in the morning, you know, sun's starting to, you know, not even coming. It was like six o'clock. Look out. And I, had, I was, I had set my bivy right next to a, a lake and there were <laughs> geese all around me <laughs> honking. I'm like, no wonder I couldn't sleep. Oh my God. It was fine. And I got up and I, Went ahead and rode. I went up Skyline and then came home. Yeah. So I did like a 200 that Friday and then it was like 300 home. Like I went another 100 out and then, or something. Like it was, yeah, again, to get your body used to that kind of mileage because that was the kind of mileage I was doing or was preparing to do for the Trans Am. And then the funny part, so I camped the very first night of Trans Am, the night that before I broke that spoke in a church parking lot in the bivy and that whole thing. And it was again, it was fine, got done. And then the next day, you're like, you know, you're going through small town America. And, you know, constantly, I'm like, every 20, 30, 40 miles, there's a little town with a motel. <laughs> and I'm looking at the sign, I'm like, 40 bucks or something. You know, it was like really cheap rates. They're these, you know, old roadside motels. I'm like, why in the world am I sleeping in the cold or the rain and messing? Because just the time to get the sack out and to set it all up. I'm like, I think I can save some space in my bag <laughs> and just go hotels and, you know, be pretty cheaper that way and uh, not be too bad. So I just, I mailed it back. I mailed my bivy back um, and didn't have, so then I didn't have any sleeping gear at all um, packed with me. That's but that saved, I had, because I had a seat post bag, a frame bag, and a bunch of other stuff. And I, uh, downsized. I got rid of the frame bag completely and just had it all behind me. Wow. So then I had better access to my bottles and stuff on the bottle cages. 
again, you just kind of live and learn and you just had no idea until you got in the moment of what do I actually need, you know? And Speaking of, uh, of living in, in the moment and learning while you go, uh, before the first day, like before you took off, any, any preconceived notions about what you thought this was going to be like and any fear or anxiety about doing something like this? I mean, again, you prepare, so you're not too scared beforehand, but then you get a whole lot more scared when you're, when you're doing it. Um, because it's the unknown, right? You don't know what to even be scared of necessarily. Um, but then you get out there and you're just like, um, the traffic, the different states, the way the roads are, you know, it's just can be sketchy. And then, um, about halfway through, there was actually a guy that got hit and got killed, um, on the father's day, it was in June. So, um, you know, there's those kind of mental things. I mean, on that race, there was a hundred and I think there was like 150 people that started. I don't quote me on that. It was over a hundred. But there was, I think, five or six people got hit by cars, and then one person died. Jeez. So, you know, when you do the percentages afterwards or even during it, like the day that the um the guy got killed, um, you, know, you just start your mind starts playing tricks on you of like, God, you have a one percent chance of dying. Was this worth <laughs> you know, something that risky? Like, is that really worth it? Or even just getting hit and injured. And every year, every year they've had major injuries always because of vehicles and most of the time it's in kansas just because it's long straight roads cars are driving really really fast and you know you kind of choose and i mean because you can either ride on the shoulders but they're full of glass and debris different states have like the rumble bars or the you know rumble strips where it's right right there on the edge and so i just usually chose to drive in the road ride in the road i had lights and stuff on i wasn't necessarily wearing like neon colors or anything but at least had a red light on the back that was on all the time because i had a dynamo hub running all my lights and um just try to be as visible as possible um versus you know i would find myself if you were riding on the shoulder or you know if you're on the stripe and you had something like that rumble bar on the other side cars weren't as willing to kind of get over so you know they would really try to buzz you but um there was one night in missouri um where it was kind of raining it was a friday night and this was before someone had died or anything but still it was just a sketchy night and it was the ozarks are really pitchy so you you know blind hills and i'd stop at a gas station for dinner i'm sitting there eating out in the parking lot and getting ready to get on my bike and you see guys walking out with cases of beer you know stacked up and i'm just like well, if I lived here, I know what I'd be doing if I had those cases of beer. <laughs> be driving around drinking, and you know, and that was what they were doing in these big trucks and stuff. And so I was, I was leaving and going up one of these hills. A truck came by and threw a beer can out the window, not at me, but just was driving and drinking. I'm like, ah, this is really sketchy. It just didn't feel right. And so I just first next town I pulled into. And it was, I mean, this is still ten or eleven o'clock at night. I mean, I'd put in a good long day, but um, you know, it was starting to rain and uh, just that kind of safety thing. You just got, you know, your spidey sense kind of got up, but again, you would never think of that necessarily beforehand because mm -hmm. nobody would talk about, Oh, there's crazy drivers. You're going to get coal rolled like daily by diesel trucks, you know, that are just being mean, but <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It was a weird kind of fun. I mean, and because so like I said, you start with a hundred and something people. Yeah. So you see people day one, as soon as you go to sleep that first night, you don't see hardly anybody for the rest of the time. You're spread out. You're spread out. Some people, you know, went to sleep earlier. 
a handful of people went over the mountain the night that I, I camped at the base. Some people just kept riding. Some of those people, though, because they kept riding so hard, their knees and ankles swelled up and they had to abandon. You know, one guy had a neck problem from being bent over. He had to abandon. I mean, you're just so you're picking people off. And even though, you know, I was in probably like the top 10 or 15 a couple of days in, then just people, it wasn't necessarily that I was, I was faster when I was riding because I had a lighter setup. I was riding a road bike. It was carbon and, you know, it was riding pretty quick, but I was taking longer breaks. I was actually sleeping as much. Well, I was sleeping like four or five hours a night. It was trying to be my routine. And some of those people were just not sleeping or they were doing like one hour or two hour nights but they would go slower because they just were fatigued in my opinion you know i mean i don't know that's how they they race it um so it is an interesting thing where like sarah was saying i was out in the middle of nowhere you don't really have anybody to talk to you don't have cell service um, people always ask oh do you listen to music or any of that kind of thing but really having the headphones in almost distracts you and you can't hear cars or if you have an issue with your bike you don't know it for a long time so you're just kind of one with yourself out there um, <laughs> in the recesses of your brain not just uh not just yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like it could be quite meditative if you really let yourself go with it what were the like i mean do you do you view it differently in retrospect versus going into it like do you have some reflections on some of the stranger aspects of of being out that long on a bike so many days in a row kind of just in your own thoughts um i mean it was funny whenever i got done and you're finished it's like god i never want to do that again you know <laughs> and it's more because of the pain and you're just like hurting so bad when you're done um and even months after like a couple months after still like i would never do that again but it was funny like the next year like around spring you know before june starts I wrote a blog about it. So people were reading that and emailing me and talking to me, called several people. And then you start, your mind's like, man, I'd love to be in there. Cause you know, <laughs> these are really like, I could be faster than those guys. <laughs> and, this and, that. and they have what they call dot watchers because everybody's got a tracker and that's how they track and make sure you're not cheating or getting out of a vehicle and zipping across. And so they know where you are at all times. And um, so I was a dot watcher that next year and that experience still, I was like, you know, I'd like to be there. But then again, once you kind of see it all, and then somebody died that year, I think, or got really, really badly injured. Um, they had the flooding and stuff that year where, again, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I got lucky the year I did it, or, you know, I had a good ride, take it as that and just kind of leave it. And, um, yeah, I've always told Ellen, my wife and a couple of people, the, the prettiest parts, actually the Western part from Oregon to Colorado was really really pretty you know just because you had the mountains constantly you went through the tetons yellowstone and then once you got kind of across the rockies down around pueblo you hit the eastern part of colorado which is extremely flat and it's like a false flat up for half the silly state and then you hit the <laughs> state line of kansas and then it does a false flat downhill um, across kansas and it's just pan flat straight road and you've got like a railroad track right next to you with like coal trains and these big trains going by so that's just your view and like kansas every 20 30 feet there's a it's a concrete road highway and there's a seam every 20 30 feet and so it's just like did it did it 
by that point, I mean, you've got saddle sores, you've got lots of issues, and it's just, yeah, it is not comfortable. And then, like I said, you get through Kansas, and then you get to, like, Missouri, and it's real pitchy. You go across Kentucky, which had dogs chasing you every, I don't know, three or four hours, um, you know, stray dog. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, the year I did it, the top three people all got bit by the same dog in this one town. And so I'd already like, you know, it's like, okay, when you're getting ready to go through this town in Kentucky, look out for this crazy dog. (laughs) And luckily people called and found this stray dog and captured it before I got there. But like people had to get rabies shots and stuff. So we get those things. I'm like, (laughs) what is going on? You know? Um, If you, if you had a time machine, would you do anything differently going into this ride? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, and I've contemplated it's more about um, what would I do to gain time? Because there were some moments I spent too much time doing certain things. And I guess my mindset going into it, because I had never done anything like this before, like this, and I had this mantra that I gained, and it took probably almost a week to get into it of, are you racing or riding? Mm-hmm. Was what I kept telling myself. Because when you're riding by yourself, you could just find yourself like just putzing around. You look around and you look down, you're like, oh, I'm only going 15 <laughs> miles an hour or something. You know, on a road, you could be going faster. And it's like, hey, let's do, get down in the arrow bars. Let's go. You know, things like the first night, I don't know, but I think I would have been better if I had gone over the climb. Yeah, it wouldn't have been a scenic or whatever, but um, that was the, the m- mindset you had to be in. It was like, okay, just keep going. Because the first day I did 285, the last day of the race, I did 305 miles. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things like you just built confidence and you just uh, understood how far you could push yourself. And when you got into that race mindset, you also got out of what you'd almost consider like a work day of like, I'm going to get up four or five o'clock in the morning, get on my bike. And then when it gets to like 10, 11 o'clock, it's time to go to bed. You know what I mean? Uh, just because that was just kind of the way you were thinking. but there is no start or end of the day. You know, it's just, okay, I'm going to sleep three or four hours. And it doesn't matter if that happens at night or during the day, but then whenever you get up, you're focused and you're riding and you're going to ride 18, 20 hours straight before you stop again, unless something crazy happens. And so that was the final mindset that helped me um, to where, yeah, like the last day I was just like, I'm not going to go to sleep again. So, so there's little things like that. Cause I mean, otherwise you could save little minutes here and there of like, I'm going to be more efficient than the gas station when I'm picking out donuts and sodas and you know, that kind of thing for refreshment. You know, it's, uh, you learn little things like breakfast time, like, you know, just order breakfast. Don't order something crazy. Like, Oh, I really want a big Mac right now, but you know, and they'll make you one like, you know, it's things like that. Um, just get whatever they've got like stacked up. Like I want, five egg McMuffins because they're all sitting right there. Um, those kind of things, like the speed of that was, because I mean, the first day, I'll never forget, like the first dinner I had was at a subway. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm going through a little town. I'm like, there's a subway. I'm going to stop and get a sandwich. And like, you know, I didn't eat a subway the rest of the time, but you read some people's blogs and they like subway and different things. It's like, you know, you got to have something quicker. You don't need the sandwich artist sitting there making you a sandwich. <laughs> taking 20 minutes here and you're standing in line and those kind of things. So you have to 
Yeah, I mean, tell us a little more about your feeding strategy. I think your your yeah. gas station strategy is uh, is sort of famous. That reputation precedes you. I'll just be honest. I mean, that you can you know to live off of. You know, I'd go into a gas. I had to practice this beforehand of like, okay, what's in a sheet? What's in a certain kind of gas station? Uh, where are they on the shelves? And then how do you do it? And what do I like to eat on a ride? And what actually works for me? So you test some things out like pizza actually doesn't i don't do well with like the pizza so sorry just, to hear that it's not that it makes you sick or anything it's just that it just doesn't it's hard to get get it down when you're riding a bike and you're down in the arrow position kind of thing but things like the hostess uh the little donuts like the little gym donuts like the white or the chocolate ones that are in like the little sleeve oh, yeah you know and you got like six or ten of them like you get those and just put them in your back pockets and then you just pop them out and you're just holding them and you're just popping them in as you go. And like every 10 minutes you're eating a donut, you know? And um, I did a lot of powder nutrition or Gatorade type nutrition at the stops. And you kind of had to get out of your mindset of being a normal customer. You, know, you have to, again, you have to like imagine yourself, like what are other people seeing? Cause they're seeing somebody come in and this, you know, I look like crazy bike person, you know, you're sunburned and, you know, just look terrible when you're in clippy shoes. That was another thing, Sarah, I would have probably done the regular, <laughs> like, uh, mountain bike shoes or, you know, cross shoes. I use road shoes and that was, yeah, I was just clippy, clippy, clippy all the time <laughs> in stores. <laughs> but, you know, so I know people already looking at me crazy. I had no qualms about just rolling my bike in the store and just leaving it because I didn't have a lock, you know, I'm not leaving it outside. It's the only thing I've got. So you'd like roll it in, just sit it right on the front. And if you might, you know, you just walk in like you own the place because they're like, what are they going to say really? Sir, that's got to go outside, you know? Um, and then you get in and then you start eating as you're shopping. So I'd get in and be like, all right, honey bun, grab a Coke. You know, they've got like a sodas right by the door, like grab a Coke, crack it open. I'm drinking it, walking back. And then you're grabbing, like, I'd go back to the cooler and get, like, two or three Gatorades or Powerade, you know, some kind of sports drink, waddle my way back up to the cash register, sit that down, hand them the empty wrapper, because I'd probably already eaten the honey bun or whatever it was, then walk over to where all the snacks are, grab a dozen, you know, you're, you're blowing 30 or 40 bucks every couple of hours at a gas station, just buying a bunch of food. And, you know, the best thing were the ones that had, like, the hot bar with hamburgers and stuff that are in like the aluminum foil and you'd grab those, put those in your pockets and, um, you know, just keep going. And then you get on the bike and then you're just eating them, you know, as you go, there were, you know, that was the thing. As you went across the country, the types of gas stations changed. The frequency of things like a McDonald's was actually rare. I mean, I, I say McDonald's a lot, but McDonald's were only in bigger cities or bigger towns. There's just a lot of the country that, doesn't have enough infrastructure to have nice fast food restaurants. And so you'd eat at mom and pop type places, which were good. You know, you had, and I had actually found some on the way when I was doing my planning of like, wow, this place actually says they have good pie. I'm going <laughs> to stop there and make sure I eat it. You know, doesn't matter what time of day it is. If it's during the daylight hours and it's open, I'm going to stop, you know, so. What was your highest high and lowest low? Hmm. Highest high, biggest one was probably on that last day, whenever um, the route goes through the Blue Ridge and then it dumps down 
near the base of Skyline. Um, I can't remember what the name of the little town is there, because then you head towards Charlottesville. And that point was the only part of the route that I had been on before, because I'd ridden Skyline to the end. And it was also those emotional things of like, wow, I'm in home turf now, you know? And I knew the route. I'm like, all right, I know Charlottesville. I know where I'm going. So, I mean, that was definitely high. I mean, you cross the, you cross the continental divide multiple times, you know, as far as, you know, big points of yeah. accomplishment, like whenever you pass the, cross the Rockies, you um, do Hoosier pass over it. And you get to the top of it and it's like, God, I'm getting ready to have like a 50 mile downhill. And, you know, I'm in, then I'm, you know, you're technically, you know, it's downhill from there on because you're at the highest point and you're heading toward the East Coast. Yellowstone was one of the places I'd ship myself. That was my first shipment shipment place because I knew I was going to try to stay the night there, get a good night's sleep, and then start early in the morning and to go through the park. Um, but I planned on being there actually early, earlier than I got there. I got there at like 10 at night because um, I was really hoping I could kind of have a recovery night. Um, but going into that, the whole, I guess it was like 60 or 90 miles with a 30 mile an hour headwind the whole afternoon. And so I was just grinding. It was just, you know, you're not going fast at all. And I actually rode with a guy, or I mean, I saw a guy and we kind of rode together and we're talking and um, he decided he was going to take a break. He's like, I'm just going to sleep through this wind and then I'm going to hit it at night in the dark. And of course, again, this is only five or six days into the race. So I'm still in that rider race mode. I don't really know what I'm doing, but race mode kind of clicked in. It's like, oh, he's going to sleep. <laughs> I heard a tortoise inherit this and just, I'm going to keep going, but it just wore me out. And then it was funny. I, you know, rested, you know, I got there. It was later than I wanted, but I got there. I made it in time. I actually ordered two pizzas on the way and I picked them up and ate one pizza that night before going to sleep and then ate the other pizza that morning before I started. And then we're talking like full on large pizzas. Um, which was different than gas station pizza. Like we're talking like from a pizza place. Yeah. 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 So starting the next day though, my legs were just toast and my knees were hurting. And it's just like, I was just, was hurting all over. And I got to the old faithful, uh, like visitor center. There's like a big gas station there. So I was going to stop and it's like right in the middle of the park. And I called Ellen and she was like, you know, you got to keep going. Blah, blah, blah. And, it's one of those weird things where you're at a tourist site, just a hundred meters over there is Old Faithful and it's going to go off. You know, it's like, got to get back on the bike and got to keep going. You know, you can't be a tourist and sit here and take pictures. And, you know, not that it was a, it was a down moment, but then once I got back on the bike, you know, she had pet me up and I kept going. And then you started going through the park and there's bison, there's bear got over the Tetons. It was just, you kind of had to just every morning, you had to kind of pep yourself up and, and get going. Um, of course, the day, the day the guy died, um, that was, that was a really low day. It was first thing in the morning was when I found out and I was going from Illinois to Kentucky and you cross a ferry. And so when I was on the ferry boat, I called my dad because it was um, uh, Father's Day and they had been dot watching and knew where I was and all that kind of stuff. And they kind of broke the news to me that, Hey, so-and-so died in Kansas last night. And you're just like, what? You know, and I'm just sitting on this ferry boat going across the, the river. And then as soon as we got on the other side, it just starts dumping rain. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? 
And so, you know, my parents just said, this guy died. That was it. And so I'm like, is the race still happening? You know, these kind of things where, you know, I don't know, like what happens in a race like this if you know, it becomes dangerous? Yeah. You know? And so I stopped at a fast food place. It was so wet. <laughs> I sit down at a table and I had like shoe covers and stuff on and they had done no good. And I just dumped my shoe upside down and water just goes onto the floor. I was like a puddle in this fast food place. <laughs> and uh, I'm just sitting there and I was on my phone and the race organizer had sent an email and just said, whatever people want to do, he like left it very open. Again, it's a ride at your own risk kind of thing. He's like, if you want to keep racing, you keep racing. If you don't feel comfortable, so I kind of just sat there and it's still raining. I sat there and I was like, all right, we've gone this far, you know, let's keep going and went on. And, you know, it was just, it's some of those things are just hard when it's, it's one thing to have the mental aspect of it, but then you throw in the weather <laughs> and rain like that. And like the last thing you want to be doing is on your bike really. And you won't be somewhere else completely, but the only way home was to get to Virginia. So I had to keep going. After the race is over, what was the physical recovery like? Yeah, I was physically, I was okay. Saddle sores and stuff like that aside, you know, those just kind of healed on their own. And yeah, main thing was just eating. You know, I lost, I think it was like 15 pounds in 19 days. Like you just lose a ton of weight. Even though I was eating, I think I figured it up. I was eating over 10,000 calories a day and you still were just, it wasn't enough. You couldn't eat enough. You're just wasting yeah. away. And you're, so you're a small, skinny guy. <laughs> Normally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. Well, it's funny, like, because I hadn't, you know, I was just wearing bike kit the whole time. And, you know, sometimes your kit gets, you know, the wind hits it and it starts getting flappy. And I just thought it was because the fabric was stretching or something, like, because you were just wearing the same thing over and over. And then as soon as I got home or, you know, Ellen and my parents actually met me, um, at the finish and they gave me regular clothes t-shirt and shorts and that kind of thing and i put them on it's just like clown suit you know it's just like like that it's too big so i mean i know you've done some crazy rides since then and you're kind of known for being able to kind of lock in and do 300 miles you know no problem seems like you're physically uniquely suited for this kind of thing but would you do this ride again or is there some other like epic distance ride that you've kind of got your mindset on Never say never. I mean, I would potentially do it again, or I would like to do it almost as a touring and not maybe race it. Because I mean, you did miss, I miss lots of good things. So maybe one day if I retire, I'll just do a touring trip and do it again, but maybe not race it. Um, there's tons of endurance races now. I mean, especially in Europe. Um, there's a couple in the States, but none of them have really intrigued me. Uh, I'm not a mountain biker, so. Um, the Tour Divide doesn't really intrigue me that much, even though I know that's a beautiful one. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe someday something like the Transcontinental Race in Europe or something. Um, yeah. And there's plenty out there. And that's, I guess, the, my, my thinking here in the States. is Like, there's so much to see and rides to do that maybe not to do the whole thing again. Because uh, it's such a big commitment. And, again, it is that mind thing of... Is it worth the risk of yeah. you know, cars and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, and just to, real quick, you mentioned your heart rate, and I know you just did, you tried to do the, um, <laughs> the Gapco Trail from Pittsburgh to D.C., and you did it in like 20, 
five hours, 26 hours? Yeah, it was a day. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned to me that at one point your, your adrenaline got really it went up because of the, the spooky haunted tunnel. And we'll, we'll talk more about that on this podcast, but your heart rate dropped down and just didn't go back up. Yeah. It crashed out. Yeah. It went, you know, I was my normal riding heart rate. If I was just riding, you know, it's 130 or something, you know, might get up to like 150. And then if I'm doing a really crazy effort, of course it goes up like anybody's 180, 190. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just cruising on that ride in particular, you know, doing my usual thing was averaging, you know, 15 to 20 miles an hour on gravel. I mean, I was cruising and, uh, yeah, I went through Paw Paw Tunnel and, um, when I exited the tunnel and my adrenaline, you know, wore off or got back to normal, my heart rate went down to like 80, 70, something like that. And then just didn't go back up. So it was funny. Like, you know, I log everything on Strava because if it's not on there, it doesn't count kind of thing. And, you know, my heart rate's nice red line and then two, and it just flatlined the whole rest of the time. And the hard part about that was that you still had, had like 12 more hours to go. So, um, and the physical impact of that without getting your heart rate to go up just meant my pace went down to like 12. Yeah. You know, you just went a whole lot slower, just couldn't get any kind of energy. Yeah. 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 The physiology of the distance riding, I think is, is pretty interesting and everybody's body is kind of, suited to it or not but also just the way that we adapt to some of this stuff is is pretty interesting so wild um yeah i think you know like you said the physiology it could be temperature it could be diet you know you know it's just like bonking almost you know and yeah yeah it's why you learn a lot about yourself on these rides when when, you know your body sort of goes into self-preservation mode um so we, one of the questions we've been asking everybody on this, uh, on this show, on the show, this podcast is, uh, about their relationship with cycling. And some of it comes from, you know, just being in this weird COVID moment where <clears throat> for some of us, the usual routine related associated with bikes has shifted, you know, how your relationship with cycling has evolved over time and kind of how you're thinking about it right now. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely switching to the long distance stuff. Number one changed my outlook on group rides and how far i rode it just um it's a weird thing that in your mind resets where i remember the first time i did like a 100 mile ride you know i don't know 15 years ago or something it was like that was the farthest i'd ridden i only would do that once a year this one event and you know other than that it was always 20 miles or 40 miles you know there's always that kind of distance after doing train rides that were like 200 miles long i always joked around I was like 200 is actually the new 100 where i could do 100 miles and it felt like 40 you know it just didn't feel like much um and then the 200 mile was like okay that's a big day you know that kind of thing and then it's a funny threshold i think from 200 to 250 there's like this gray area of like it it's kind of hurts a little bit more but then from 250 on it's kind of like oh it's all kind of the same so it was a different thing of uh, distance. And then, like I said, number one, it's hard to find anybody crazy enough to do those rides with you because then nobody's gonna be like, hey, I want to go ride 200 miles. Um, <laughs> so, you, you know, your company gets smaller and smaller. And like I said, uh, talked to you earlier, uh, different time that unlike some of the, the shop rides or some other rides around, I think just after being riding solo, you get a whole lot more nervous about riding around other people. Not that I have forgotten how to ride around people because I have done 
mass start rides and time trials and things uh, locally uh, and then big gravel events that have thousand people in them so i mean i'm around a lot of riders and i'm not, i'm still comfortable riding around people it's just that sketchiness of i don't need that in this training ride and you know i don't have to stop when they stop i don't have to mess with somebody else's you know oh you blew a tire oh it's too bad but yeah i don't it's one of those things i almost don't want to have to be the guy that's like i'm gonna ride on sorry <laughs> you know um so yeah just to get around that i just kind of ride solo and then because of covid you know like you said it, it messed up I had signed up for, I had Steamboat Gravel, Belgian Waffle Ride, Dirty Kanza, XL. I had, you know, several big rides um, this year on the docket that I was training for and all. And that was why the the Gap CNO ride came about. It was because these rides get canceled. You're already trained. It's like, I'm not going to waste this fitness. And I still want to ride. I want to, you know, do these things. So... Um, that ride came about because the day that I did that was the day I was supposed to be in Kansas doing DKXL. And that was a, that was supposed to be 350 miles. So I wanted to do 350. So I did 350 to your point of the social aspect of cycling, the Zwift or online network of people. I found group rides and people on there that were all on the same rides all the time. We chat, we get on discord we're talking. So I have friends now, virtual friends. That you know, I might meet some of them in real life. Who knows? I mean, it's kind of like online anything, right? Um, but you know, every Tuesday night, Thursday night, I'm doing certain rides. Every you know, I've, I've got a schedule now, and when I'm going to be online, and then you know, then I sprinkle in outdoor riding. You know, just to keep that going too, and make sure all my bikes aren't uh, collecting dust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're making it work for you. Yeah. No, so, you know, speaking of all your bikes uh, and, and which ones are not uh, collecting dust, we got a, a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Okay. For our rapid fire question segment. Um, and the first one is uh, What is the favorite bike that you have ever owned? Hmm. So I've kind of got two. I will say so the road bike slash gravel bike that I have now is my favorite like all around racing bike that I've ever owned. It's an allied all road and custom carbon, you know, out of Arkansas, made in America. Um, just love the bike. It's very comfortable. And if I had had it for the Trans Am, it would have been a better ride. I used, I mean, the bike I used was great. It was a giant TCR and I rode giants for a long time because of the connection with bike rack. But I think this bike's a little bit more forgiving. Um, with the geometry it is. So it's just a great, great all around bike. And like I said, I take it out. I mean, it's, they call it the alpha all road. It goes on gravel. It goes on single track, it goes on whatever. And you, you gotta have the tires and the wheels to make it work, you know, with the certain terrain. So you just prepare for that. But as far as the bike itself, it's solid. But I think the bike I've had the longest is the first road bike I ever got. It was a Trek 1500 SL, this red, aluminum frame bike and that was my first road bike like when i got out of grad school i started biking in grad school down in florida and it was to commute and that was all i was doing was i didn't like driving and like sitting in traffic and i was passing all these people and that bike i've kept it it's been through crashes it's been stolen and i recovered it like i mean this bike has had so many stories with it and it's my commuter bike now if i was working in an office and not <laughs> working from home. Um, but it's just like one of those things where it's like the old dependable, you know? So it's like sitting there and 
if the all road, I mean, it'll eventually go, you know, I'll sell it or, you know, trade it for something different, but that red bike will still probably be there because I can't part with it and it won't die. We're going to revisit your gas station times for our next uh, rad fire question. Uh, what is the strangest thing you've ever eaten mid ride? Trying to think if there was any, Oh, I know. <laughs> so this wasn't at a gas, does it have to be a gas station or can it just be Absolutely not. It can be anywhere. Yeah. So there was one night, it was like second or third night of the Trans Am. And there was this like weird Airbnb type place. It was like this ranch house. And so I called the lady because um, I was like the day of, I'm not doing this stuff in advance. And she had some kind of thing. She's like, okay, yeah, um, you come stay here. She's like, I'm already got some people in this other room, but you can stay out in the bunkhouse. It's this. So I'm sleeping out in this like barn, this tack room next to this goat barn. So literally there's baby goats and I'm sleeping on this bed and this thing. And she goes, here, I know you're probably hungry. So I brought you all this stuff. Is she on this goat jerky that she brought me? I'm like, I'm starving, you know, I'll eat anything. So you're just like eating these sticks and then, you know, they were um, sealed up. So I'm like, I'm gonna eat these on the ride tomorrow. And, you know, a little bit of jerky is okay. But a lot of jerky is not okay. And so like the next day, I'm just like, I got to switch something. This is not working. And I had to throw away probably two. I mean, these sticks were like two foot long. And I had to throw them away because I was like, I just couldn't eat more than one. I was like, this is all I got. That's weird that it even popped in my head. But that was like one of the weirdest things. I'm like, yeah, that one wins. I'm going to give that one to you. That's pretty weird. I like it. What's the worst clothing choice you've ever made for a ride? I'm just like not putting on the clothes. I'm trying to think, I mean, because I really don't like cold. I don't mind the heat. Um, like I said, I, I started riding down in Florida. So warm, you know, hot riding is actually a strength of mine. So I didn't mind middle of June going across Kansas where it was 100 degrees. Like it was really, really hot and was fine. But cold weather and having enough layers, my hands and feet freeze. And so it's really hard to nail a good pair of gloves and get the right gloves that work. So mm -hmm. um, gloves are always a challenge. Um, I don't even rain. I never even try with rain. I've got like some rain jackets and stuff, but you just end up getting wet. So I don't even. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point of what's good or bad, like bad stuff or bad choices, I think if you expect it to be bad, then you don't care as much. And so like, if it's going to rain, I am like, it's going to suck. So I don't care what I've got on versus like, I want to be warm and, you know, getting enough layers. I think that's a, that's a funny one. I'm still working on getting the right number of layers and jackets and stuff to stay warm. Um, what is one thing you'd bring with you on any big dumb ride? I mean, I always have, you know, there's always the essentials, right? You got a phone and, and some of that stuff just in case the, um, especially with the tuba stuff, I've always got the plugs and then, you know, air pump. Like I, I always, for some reason I pack a CO2, but I swear I'll probably only use one or two ever in my whole life. Like I like using like just a hand pump. Like, I don't know what it is where it's like, I'm, you know, it says it's one of those things where like, I don't like wasting stuff. And I have this mentality of, I don't want to waste a CO2. Like it's not CO2 worthy kind of thing. Um, so I always have this, uh, you know, hand pump that's in my back pocket and, uh, up tires that way so that's always with me pretty much is that uh, silica hand pump um you know your multi-tool like i've got the same setup it's funny with that allied bike 
I did a big dumb ride uh, a year or so ago. Uh, it was the, the B3, the bikes, bourbon, barbecue, or whatever, banjos, I think, whatever it is, guys <laughs> out in Lost River that we Bears did. in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, um, it was out in Lost River, and you know that was only like 85 or 90 miles or something, but we made saddle dingles, which, Andy, if you don't know what a sad, saddle dingle is, you, uh, you just, I mean, we were making them from like doll parts and different things, and so I've got a, like a Barbie doll head that's got a zip tie that's on my, the back of my seat uh, saddle. And so that's always with me. Um, she's kind of just sitting there dangling and, you know, staring back at anybody that's riding behind me. And it's a good conversation piece because people, for some reason, they, you know, you remember people's kits sometimes if it's uh, like, oh, that's a nice kit. Everybody remembers a Barbie doll head staring back at them. And they, <laughs> it never fails. Any ride I'm with other people, they're like, hey, man. What's up with the, the doll head on your seat? <laughs> <laughs> of course, my name's Ken. So I can be like, you know, it's Barbie and Ken, or you know, you can make up any kind of story about it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. No, I, I'm an appreciate appreciator of the of the dangle. I think All right. we, we, we realized that we had hit the point of true delirium um, during a bike packing race in Florida one time when we uh, dangled a hubcap and then uh, thought very seriously about trying to dangle a dead bobcat. Wow. And we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a race. <laughs> we, we, we can't dangle this dead cat. We've got to keep going. <laughs> There's weight and arrow things there, you know? Come on, you're not worth it. Harder. And we were on steel mountain bikes, so. Yeah. <laughs> this is done. All right. Last rapid fire round question. Um, so. Andy and I on these big, dumb COVID rides we've done, uh, talk a lot about like the things in the bike market that we wish existed, but didn't. Um, so for you, Ken, if money and time was no object, what is one bike product that you would bring to market that doesn't exist? And it could be an app, a tool, a bike accessory, a food item, <laughs> whatever. Hmm. I mean, I'm always surprised, you know, the technology of the bike, when you look at it, it hasn't changed that much since it was invented. It is dumb that, I mean, just now that we're doing tubeless tires and even that technology, you're like, is really this, is this the best we can do that you're worried about? Yeah, you know, that you could have a, you could buy a however many thousand dollar bike, but then a $5 tube blows and you're stuck on the side of the road. Um, you know, the tire technology you would think could be improved, you know, some of the drivetrain stuff, you know, it's like, I've seen the bike, I'm sure you've seen it too, the ceramic speed. That's the, um, axle, the, you know, drive axle thing that turns instead of a chain, you know, so it's a chainless technology that it's like, yes, ideas like that of like, there's gotta be some other things that I think people that ride bikes or use bikes, maybe just think, oh, this is simple enough. Let's not mess it up. But, you know, yeah. I think you could push the envelope a little bit and find some other efficiencies or something there um, to make it, it's all about making it faster and lighter and, and stronger, right? So I'm yeah. always curious to see what things like graphene or, you know, the new, I know UCI, of course, limits so much on bikes as far as race bikes with the weight and the ratios of the frame geometries. And I think they've relaxed some of that. So 2021, I think we're going to see more 
crazy looking bikes as far as the thinness of the front forks and frames and that kind of thing, which is good for those kind of bikes. And that's the beauty, I guess, of cycling, right? Is different kind of users. Everybody's got different kinds of bikes. Preferences, yeah. Yeah, and so it's always up to the the, the consumer, I guess, of what they're going to buy and, and put their money into. But um, yeah, I'm always hopeful and I haven't thought of anything or there's nothing that you really think is missing, but I think there's always that thought of there's got to be something a little bit better, some of this stuff. <laughs> Um, well, thank you again for joining us and uh, telling us about this, this ride across America. I've been wanting to hear more about it for a long time, and uh, it sounds totally epic. Um, but we appreciate you joining this, this podcast and sharing some of your stories with us. Yeah. Thanks. And I mean, anybody that listens to this, I did write a blog when I got done uh, with the Trans Am. And so if you just Google Ken Ray Trans Am, I'm the only one that comes up. Um, and so I've got it day by day, basically what I did. and the stories in there i've had lots of people tell me like it's it's emotional it's funny you know it, it's uh there's a lot in there because there are just crazy stories you'll probably be kicking yourself like god we should ask you about the rattlesnake or we should ask you about this or that like there's so many stories oh, oh we're still recording we're still are you still recording? Yeah. <laughs> tell us about the rattlesnake incident on trans am so this was a good yeah that was a good story the uh so there was one stretch I had to go over 100 miles without any services. So I had to prepare in advance. And I knew that there was a gas station at this T of the road before you turn. And um, that was going to be my saving grace of like, I can get enough water and stuff prepared to go across that 100 mile stretch and then get to that gas station and I'll be fine. And it's just like another stop. It's a long stretch, but that's fine. Um, so I'm riding, I'm riding, I'm riding see the gas station in the distance. I ran out of water like 10 miles earlier and it's hot and it's like getting to that, you know, edge of like, I need to get some refreshment, need some fluids pretty quick. No cars in the gas station parking lot, pull up to the gas station, see the sign on the, on the door that says, uh, store closed rattlesnake. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And, and mind you, in this 100 miles, I've gone through, I can only call them ghost towns. Like, there are these towns that are just boarded up. And, you know, I'm going, my, my spreadsheet and my list of things was by Google Earth, fly through, looking, seeing what's open, seeing the hours. And that kind of, like, I had those kind of details in there. But I'm not from there. This store could have been boarded up months ago, you know, that kind of thing. And so I'm just about to just fall over because I had my spreadsheet and the next town's like 30, 40 miles. I'm like, this is going to be a struggle. And then, thank goodness, all of a sudden, you know, you got like the blinds and the blinds were shut on the windows. I see like the blinds open up and this woman like eyes poke out and she's like pointing. And I'm like, what, what? And there was a hose spigot right there because I was like pointing out like, I need water. And she's like, you can't, you know, she's like telling me, you see, like, we're doing this like weird charades of she's basically telling me you can't come inside, but you can get water from the hose bib thing, the spigot on the side of the thing. So I'm like, all right. So I fill my bottle up, I'm drinking. Then all of a sudden this like four wheel drive, big pickup truck with this animal, you know, snake wrangler guy. that has got like this logo on the side of his truck. He comes out and he's got like his poles and all this stuff. And I'm just sitting there and I haven't talked to anybody. So all I know is there's a sign on the door that says store closed rattlesnake. It's written by hand. A woman's inside the store, but she's got the store locked and she won't let me in. And then the snake guy comes in and I was like, 
are you getting the snake out? And he goes, yeah, I'm going to try to catch the snake. I'm like, and so I'm sitting there, I, I really had only been there for a few minutes, enough time to get water, drink. And I'm like, well, I'm going to hang out just to see how this thing plays out. He's in there maybe for a minute. He comes out and he's got the, the pole and the whole nine yards with this big rattlesnake on it and sets it down. I see it, take a picture and stuff. And then I'm like, is the store open now? Is that the only rattlesnake? And he's like, yeah, it should be fine. So then I bust in there and then do my typical gas station thing. And then I'm talking to this, you know, the woman at the cash register. I'm like, what just happened? Like, what, what do you, like, how long have you been in the store like this? And apparently a little boy had found it. He came up to his mom when she was checking out and she goes, mommy, mommy, look at the toy snake. And this rattlesnake was coiled up on the shelf and had gotten into the store. And, um, it was just sitting there. And so they had to clear the whole store out and lock it all down. And so they had that handwritten thing. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. And so I told her, you know, what was crazy. If she hadn't looked out the window, I would have probably gotten on my bike and started riding and I'd have a heat stroke or something <laughs> miles down the road. Um, but yeah, I got like this crazy picture with the dude with the snake and all that kind of stuff. It was, uh, it was hit or, hit or miss there. I feel like that's such an American story, too. Another good one was in Kentucky, there was this where I was going to stop. It was raining, and I pulled up to this hotel, and it was like this resort. It said resort. Same thing. I guess because of Father's Day, it was a Sunday. There was nobody at the front desk of this hotel at all. And a handwritten paper on the thing says, call Bob. It had this number. I'd say Bob. It could have been anything. It said, call whoever, and it had this phone number. So I call this random number. And I'm like, hey, Bob. I'm on a bicycle. I just need a room for a few hours to sleep. You know, I mean, I've have been having this conversations daily because you're calling these random motels in advance to be like, hey, can I get a room? I'm going to be coming in at one o'clock in the morning. Can you leave a key under the door or that kind of thing? Like that was my day-to-day hotel interaction. I didn't, I don't think I ever went in to a hotel lobby and checked out a room. It was always, hey, I'm going to be flying in at this time and I'm going to leave it four or five in the morning. So you're never going to see me. And then the cool thing was to tell them, I see on your website, you have a continental breakfast. Can you like just box up a bunch of that stuff and just have it sitting in my room or in the mini fridge? And by God, they did it. Um, but this is a particular instance. It was raining. I call this random number. He just goes, yeah, go upstairs to room. Uh, you know, like I can't remember the number 29 or whatever. He like just tells me this random door and I'm like, well, I need a key. He goes, it's unlocked. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I go up there and I unlock it and go in. I slept, left. And then it was funny. The next day I was at a gas station and crossed paths with one of the guys you're kind of hopscotching with um, on the right ride. And I was like, like, hey, man, how'd you do in that storm? He goes, man, the craziest thing. He goes, I stopped at this hotel and I called this random cell phone number. And he told me to go to this thing. So apparently this guy just stays at home. I think every room in this hotel is unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> and he just tells you to go to a certain room and, you know, ask for the credit card number and you just paid and you have to keep going. You really saw the country. <laughs> yeah. That's- There's a whole lot of America between the coasts. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Falls off quick. You get like a hundred miles in from the coast and then it's just middle America. Yeah. <laughs> in all its glory. 
That's amazing. Well, I'm glad we uh, we lingered on to ask you a couple more questions. Yeah. <laughs> those are those are some gems. <laughs> ah, thanks. Thanks for for sharing with us your slice of America. Yeah. Uh, really big, dumb slice of America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forty two hundred twenty six miles, and I'm looking at it now is one hundred eighty four thousand five hundred twenty three feet of elevation. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> big dumb ride. Big dumb ride. I'd say that's maybe one of the biggest. Those far, maybe the dumbest. You definitely win. You win the biggest, dumbest ride of the Big Dumb Ride podcast. Your prize, I, I don't know, but there's no prize. All you get for doing that ride is a, a bike cap and the number and a sticker. That's it. Well, thanks again, Ken. This was so yeah. fun, and uh, we're glad you could join us. Next time I do a Big Dumb Ride, we'll we'll do it again. Yeah, that's great. All right. <laughs> it, it won't take long. I'll be doing another dumb one. I'm sure soon. So. Counting on it. Yeah. Counting on it. <laughs>